Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. US President Donald Trump continues to confound the world in many areas, not least that of foreign policy. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. The United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. I recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. I ordered the United States Armed Forces to launch precision strikes on targets associated with the chemical weapons capabilities of Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad. And on June 12th, in Singapore, I'll be meeting with Kim Jong-un to pursue a future of peace and security for the world, for the whole world. But you remember everybody in the fake news where they were saying, he's going to get us into a nuclear war. He's going to get us into a nuclear war. Well, those are some of the sound bites. But what is the reality behind the rhetoric? In what fundamental ways has the Trump administration changed the way the US interacts with the world? And what are the consequences? Not least for America's European allies, who are still welcome in Washington to express their view, but are no longer sure anybody there is really listening to them. These are among the issues I'll be teasing out today with Thomas Wright, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington and the author of All Measures Short of War, The Contest for the 21st Century and the Future of American Power. Tom, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks, it's great to be with you. And Tom, when you last spoke to us uh, last July, we were just six months into the Trump presidency. He was still a novice in the White House and we were all still much, pretty, pretty much trying to figure out how this presidency was going to go. Now, we're now well into his four-year term. In terms of foreign policy, which is what we're discussing today, has anything surprised you about Trump or has he acted pretty much as you expected? Well, firstly, I can't believe it's uh, it's been almost a whole year. Um, it feels like an eternity, actually. Every every day of Trump <laughs> it feels like a dog year in ways because so much happens. But I have to say, um, he hasn't really surprised me that much. I mean, I think he does a lot of things that are shocking, and there's always drama and always crises. But I think he is who we thought he was. You know, I don't think uh, that he's fundamentally different than we thought he would be before the election. Um, President Macron has a line that he uses sometimes that he thinks President Trump is very predictable, um, that the unpredictability is overdone. Uh, and he says, if you look at what he said in the campaign trail or previous to that, um, or just his general sort of disposition, um, that he, he sort of that plays out on a daily basis. And I think that's basically right. I mean, we've seen this very volatile, very prickly very risk acceptant character with some visceral impulses, you know, govern now for sort of a year and a half. And I think as time goes on, all of those characteristics are um, are exacerbated and, 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 and sort of more pronounced. So we see more of Trump today maybe than we did a year ago. And because as he sort of settles into the job, um, he tries to sort of assert his authority um, over those in his administration. In fact, you did make the point yourself, Tom, here last summer that for all the surface volatility, Trump has always been pretty much consistent on the fundamental things such as American isolationism, for example. Yeah, he. Um, I think what I probably said then was he has sort of a 30-year track record of talking about 
politics. You know, he, he's obviously not a scholar. He doesn't really read. He's not, you know, writing sort of thoughtful articles in journals or newspapers. Um, but he is opining constantly. You know, he's he's giving interviews uh, to uh, various uh, media outlets. He's buying ads in newspapers to express his anger at certain uh, events. And if you look at all of those uh, you know, utterances over the decades, um, you basically, what you basically find is that he's been saying the same thing. You know, he's always been opposed to free trade. He's always been really annoyed at allies in Europe and Asia for taking advantage of America. He always feels the rest of the world is laughing at the United States. He always wants to strike better deals and thinks pre- previous presidents have been very bad deal makers. Um, and what's different about this time is that this time his message, for whatever reason, and it resonated with with a large segment of the voters. And so they would have, I think, very much dismissed him in previous years. You know, he's 71 years old now, I think. He's not going to change. You know, he's not someone who's going to evolve. And I think the one thing, you know, you asked if anything surprised me. I think the thing we've learned over the last year is that um, he's he's not going to evolve into a different person. You know, he is who he is. And he started off on the foreign policy front somewhat constrained because he didn't know anything about the job. He knew nothing about the issues. He had these visceral beliefs, but he didn't know anything about the detail and the substance. And so he was sort of boxed in by his cabinet because they were able to maneuver him into doing certain things that maybe he didn't want to do, like pursuing a mainstream foreign policy in part, you know, backing NATO and the like. And now, um, as he's sort of been longer in it, he's figuring out how to push back. And I think the big story in 2017 was the rise of the so-called, you know, access of adults who sort of constrained him to some degree. And the big story in 2018, which I think was predictable at the beginning of 2018, is the dissolution of that access of adults and him pushing back and trying to install install loyalists so he can do what he wants to do, whether it's on the Iran nuclear deal, uh, on moving the embassy to Jerusalem, uh, or even on something as silly as having a military parade in Washington, which everyone objected to, but he has insisted on. So on all of these different issues, um, plenty of others as well, on Syria, on North Korea, you, what you're beginning to see now is him doing what he wants to do and we are all going to have to live with the consequences of that. You know, so if these go wrong, and I, of course, think many of them will, um, you know, maybe they won't. But my, my view is they most of them probably will go wrong uh, or, or are already going wrong and that they will be not easily undone. You know, there will be consequences to this that the world and the United States will have to cope with for for some time. So that makes it a very consequential year, I think. Something, Tom, you you alluded to there, and the big change, I suppose, since last summer has been the change in personnel around Trump. And again, when you were with us the last time, you did speak about kind of reassuringly, I thought about how the mainstream forces around him, you know, were capable of constraining him. Now the, the mainstream forces or the, the, the adults in the room, as they, they've been referred to, have been pretty much vanquished. And you have people like um, foreign policy hawks occupying very senior positions, and particularly Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State, and John Pol- John Bolton is now a National Security Advisor. What changes do you think they will bring? Are we now going to see an unfettered Donald Trump act without constraint? I think I, I think that's what he hopes for. <laughs> so, you know, he appointed 
um, Pompeo and Bolton because he wanted to be empowered and enabled. Um, so that's his intention. Whether or not that happens, I think, is an interesting question. I just finished this article last week to try to look in detail, um, in detail at Pompeo and Bolton. And, and the conclusion I came to is that, you know, a lot of people assume that they're a war cabinet and they'll work together to empower Trump. But actually, they're very, very different people coming from very different backgrounds, very different motivations. You know, they're very different age. Uh, Bolton is 70, 71. Pompeo is 54. Bolton has this lifelong ambition being sort of to to put it up to the people who believe in international law and international institutions. He's been fighting on sort of a unilateralist side against multilateralists for decades. And this is his you know, last best chance to achieve his life's work. All right, joining me right now for more on this, we have former Ambassador John Bolton, the senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a Fox News contributor. Good to see you, sir. Ambassador, are there any diplomatic options left in your view? Uh, I think the only diplomatic option left is to end the regime in North Korea by effectively having the South take it over. I think you've got to argue to China. That's not really diplomatic. There. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as far yes, as they're it, concerned. Well, that's their problem, not ours. Um, Pompeo, on the other hand, um, his defining uh, uh, characteristic really is his political skill. He's risen very fast. He was elected to Congress for the first time in 2010 in Kansas. And, and you know, eight years later, he's Secretary of State. That's that's pretty quick, especially given that the, the leap from Congress to Secretary of State occurred over the last two years. Um, and he needs, you know, he needs this position not to be seen as a failure in four, six or eight years time because he wants to run for president in the future. Um, he may even want to be Trump's successor. And so I think the big question really, there's no doubt that Bolton will be who we thought he was. He'll be a hardliner, a unilateralist who will really try to um, exploit his position to to further his agenda. But Pompeo is the one to watch because he, he could align with Bolton and with Trump and then make that view unstoppable. Or he could get closer to Mattis um, on the basis that um, he needs to be cautious and that he can't afford a catastrophe for his own political reasons um, and that he may be better served by listening to Mattis and by working with him. And also he prides himself on running an effective building at, at the CIA. He prided himself on the fact that there was a you know, that he was popular, relatively speaking, with the staff and that the organization generally ran well. He wants to do the same with the State Department and Bolton uh, very much distrust the State Department. So I think those two will clash if there's any sort of way, a glide path toward a softer uh, approach. It would probably be through Pompeo. That won't necessarily happen. Um, I'm not hugely confident in it, but I think if there was a if there was a pathway to a more mainstream foreign policy, it would be because both because Pompeo makes a decision to align more with Mattis, and then that those two together with Kelly, who on national security grounds is pretty mainstream on on other issues like immigration, he's very hardline, but on national security issues uh, like foreign policy issues, he's an ally of Mattis, very very close uh, to him, and um, that you may see this new. Uh, sort of divide in the administration. You painted a very uh, amusing picture, really, in my mind, in the article. You, you say that even friends of Bolton's 
say that he is a kind of guy who he argues to the to the bitter end, and he he you know he argues his point incessantly. And whereas uh, you say Pompeo is a, devised a much better way of dealing with Donald Trump, which is you know, maybe a more kind of convivial way of speaking to him. And you think Donald Trump might actually get get tired of listening to John Bolton? Yeah, um, you know Pompeo. We just start with Pompeo. I mean, Pompeo did something that. Um, well, just to say at the beginning, like Pompeo has been ruthless and very, very partisan on many occasions, and particularly towards Hillary Clinton over Benghazi, where he behaved outrageously, in my view, and and uh, and in many in his own party um, broke with him on the the extent of his partisanship uh, uh, in that hearing. Um, so he he's very well capable of of bitter uh, fighting himself. But um, he's also capable of sort of reaching out to others. Um, and he did that, I think, pretty effectively with Europe on the Iran deal, where European diplomats saw Pompeo as somebody they can engage with and still do and basically believe while he's a hardliner that he's open to compromise. They don't see that with Bolton. But the thing that you're, you're alluding to that he did that really no one else succeeded in doing was he was the only person who developed a, a good working personal relationship with Trump. You know, if you look at everyone else, Tillerson tried and failed, McMaster tried and failed, um, virtually everyone tried and failed. Mattis gets on well with Trump, but he doesn't engage with him that much. And so he's sort of a bit aloof and standoffish. You know, he's at the Pentagon. It's not a huge amount of interaction and Trump respects, I don't think slightly fears him in, in some ways. Um, and and so they get on okay, but it's not the same thing as a as a as a regular um, sort of briefing uh, style relationship. So Pompeo did that quite effectively, um, and I think that's a particular skill. Bolton um, is the sort of guy that if you agreed with them on ninety percent and disagreed with ten percent, he you know he just bite you to death over the ten percent, and he's quite argumentative. Um, and I think that if you, you know, he'll be in contact with Trump all the time and uh, Trump tires of people uh, quite quickly. And there's also significant differences, actually, substantively between Trump and Bolton. Um, they have a very different view of North Korea, uh, the North Korea summit. And um, Bolton believes it will fail and basically wants it to fail and has been very clear about that before he went in. Um, but also in the Bush administration, he fought tooth and nail against any diplomacy with North Korea. Trump, I think, wants to cut a deal with Kim Jong-un. We might be able to come back to that in a second, but I think he wants that to to work. On Russia, they differ fundamentally. And on Syria, I think where Trump wants to get out, um, they may differ. I'm not fully sure of Bolton's views there, but I suspect they're more um, in favor of staying in. Um, so I, I think a big question is how they will get on, and, and especially over the summit, if that goes in a certain direction. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Bolton left in a few months' time. Um, he could last a year. You know, that's quite possible, too. Um, but I don't think there's a the non-trivial possibility that they will, you know, just knock it on particularly well and that Trump will look for someone else at the end of the summer. 
And um, Tom, yeah, I suppose now is as good a time as any to talk about the summit. Um, so we know Trump and Kim are to meet in Singapore next month in June, June the 12th. Even if some Republicans are getting carried away by suggesting Donald Trump should get the Nobel Peace Prize for taking the North Korea discussions this far, isn't it fair to acknowledge that he has made astonishing progress in alleviating a crisis that a few months ago looked like, a, you know, an, an ever increasing threat? I think that is the way it looks um, to to most of the world, I think, and, and to many people here as well. But I, I don't really agree. I mean, I think that it's I'm quite worried about the summit, actually, because I think what firstly, it's a it's a very bizarre situation where, you know, you have a president who is basically going to go into this meeting and just wing it by his own admission. You know, he's not letting people know in advance what he's going to, you know, offer up. Um, he's not really going to be scripted or listen to his advisors. He believes he can strike a deal with the power of his own personality with Kim. And I think he sort of likes Kim, actually. He said in the campaign trail a bunch of times he sort of respected his ruthlessness and his ability to eliminate his rivals. And, you know, it, it's sort of quite bizarre, but he, um, I, I think he, he believes that this is the Mount Everest of deals and he wants to strike this deal. But the worry is that he'll basically give away too much. I mean, there's always two problems with Trump. One was that he would start a war, but the other was he would sell everyone out. And, you know, we've gone immediately from one to the other. And, and what does selling out here mean? It means that he would go in to the meeting with Kim and he would say, all I really care about is the missiles that can hit the United States. So if you get rid of those, um, then I will get rid of the alliance with South Korea. And, you know, the U.S. will pull out of South Korea, pull all its troops out. And, you know, you can do what you want. But as long as you don't attack us or threaten us, that's fine. Um, I mean, that's a very crude version, but that's um, something that people who know Trump and have talked to him about Korea believe is a real uh, risk here. And and such a deal would be catastrophic because it would, um, firstly, it would make conflict more likely because it would create a vacuum um, that would encourage North Korea maybe to take risks um, and new risks. Um, it would hugely alienate Japan, would be really left to fend for itself. Uh, Prime Minister Abe is very worried about this scenario. Um, and they may feel no option except to get nuclear weapons themselves in that scenario a few years down the road. And South Korea um, would also be alienated and abandoned. They're very supportive, obviously, of the summit, but they don't want the troops to be on the table. So um, so what's sort of worrying is that we're going into this summit uh, really freewheeling in with very little guidance uh, very little of this of the apparatus of the state and the State Department and the, you know, the whole uh, uh, institutions of, of foreign policy here being involved. Um, and he is really motivated, I think, by the glory of the Nobel Peace Prize and getting a deal and, and striking something dramatic. Um, and I think he will try. He's raising expectations. I think he will try to do it just on the spot, um, quite possibly. So um, a lot of people are worried about that here. I think the, um, uh, you, I think even Bolton's worried about it actually as well. He's been trying to define denuclearization in more expansive terms, consistent with how it's traditionally been defined here. Um, so we'll see, but it's, it's going to be a, a big spectacle. It will get huge ratings as he would say himself, <laughs> you know, so, 
everyone will be glued to um, glued to the screens. Um, but I think it is a sort of high risk, um, both because they could strike a deal that's a bad deal, or because if it broke apart, um, then he might say, look, I've exhausted diplomacy, and then move towards conflict. The best case outcome, I think, is that it's a broad um, statement of principles. They then kick it to Pompeo to negotiate the details, and that that takes about a year. It would need to take about a year to go through everything in detail and to get all the guarantees about inspections and the like, and then to test it out and then have another summit in a year's time. So that, I think, will be a success. Um, a big sort of peace in our time declaration and will be a failure and a complete breakdown will be a failure as well. It is it is worrying, isn't it, Tom, that Trump seemed to misinterpret a, a limited statement by North Korea about um, scaling down nuclear activities or, or scaling down yeah, activities. He, he he tweeted, he seemed to misread it as a, as a commitment to denuclearization. So you kind of wonder how much does he does he does he understand all of the issues involved? Or is that fair to yeah, him? I mean, he doesn't understand them at all, I think is is I mean, I think that's very clear because he's not interested really in in, in even the recent past. I mean, that's a good example, Chris, of where, you know, denuclearization is a word that's been used by North Korea for many years um, by Kim's father and by himself. And it means something very particular when they use it. It means um, that if the US-South uh, Korea alliance comes to an end and they perceive no danger um, from the United States on the peninsula because the United States has left, that at that point, um, they may consider over a long period of time giving up their nuclear weapons, right, because their security environment has changed and they can achieve unification without them. Um, that That's something that, you know, obviously is is not acceptable because it would mean, you know, unilateral, uh, unilateral disarmament in the hope that they would denuclearize and, uh, you know, many problems with that, obviously. Um, but when they use that term again, he said, ah, see, they've, they've, they've backed down, even though they'd said nothing new at all. And Kim actually hasn't said anything about denuclearization, uh, you know, um, more, more broadly. Anything that has been reported has been through the South Korean president, Moon Jae-in. So, um, so there's a lot of skepticism here that North Korea has really backed down. Um, there's really no evidence from them to suggest that they have. Um, even the dismantling of the nuclear side is very similar to, uh, you know, 2007, and they destroyed uh, a facility um, as sort of a, a gesture of goodwill. Um, you know, afterwards, you know, it turned out they ended up using it for something else. So they've done this plenty of times before. Um, so it's worth it's worth seeing out. You know, it's worth you know seeing if they're sincere or not, but. Um, but Trump's sort of line that he put this maximum pressure on and they backed down and now um, it's a big triumph, I think is, is just not borne out by the facts. Um, so we, you know, we need to see where this goes. But I think it's important to be sort of cautious and careful and to have a, you know, a detailed process that, you know, you know, takes some time and goes through all of the different aspects and, is a is sort of normal, boring diplomacy rather than, you know, these two sort of unique and very volatile people sort of sitting down together and writing out a deal in the back of a napkin and declaring it, um, you know, as as the new 
you know, new regime in Northeast Asia and then having everyone else have to cope with the aftermath of it. And now um, one of the other major foreign policy issues under discussion, of course, is the Iran nuclear deal under which which Iran committed to curbing its nuclear activities in return for an easing of sanctions. Trump's and then Trump's decision to withdraw from that deal. making good, I suppose, on an election promise when he did so. Now, European leaders are scrambling to save the deal in some form. Do you think, first of all, can the deal be saved? Um, Well, I think it was a catastrophic decision to pull out of the deal. And I think that the pulling out of the deal was was a very bad move, but the way he did it was even worse. So he could have he could have withdrawn in a soft way. Um, it still would have been problematic, but it would have allowed some scope to save the deal or for it to continue or for negotiations to continue. But how he did it um, with the, the scope of the sanctions and the commitments that he made uh, were particularly devastating. And then a, a third sort of sin was that he has no plan. You know, there's no plan for what to do now, except to try to foment regime change in Tehran. So um, so I think on, on all scores, you know, pulling out the hard nature of the exit and the fact that there is no plan, this is, you know, really an unmitigated um, disaster in terms of policy. It's as bad a scenario as anyone could have contemplated and certainly the worst case scenario for Macron and for others. Um, Europe, I think, is right to try to see um, if there's a way to um, salvage the deal, but it's not going to work, I, I'm afraid. I, I, I don't think it will work because um, if you think about what's going to happen now, Europe's going to go to Iran and they're going to say, or they've already gone and say, you know, we want we want you to stay in and we want to keep going. And the Iranians will say, uh, okay, but we need absolute cast iron guarantees from you about commercial engagement. You know, and they're going to ask for additional commitments from Europe about economic assistance and support, which will be a direct contradiction, of course, to what the U.S. is arguing for. And um, but it will also be very problematic for for European countries for for their own reasons to do that because they have additional concerns about Iran and because their companies are vulnerable um, to to U.S. law as well. And I can't see those negotiations really working out. I think they'll be very, very difficult. Um, and then on top of all of that, um, you have, uh, you, you know, on, t- on, t- on top of all of that, you have sort of the combustible uh, situation in, in, in the region um, as well. So um, and, and the fact that Iran is deeply divided and there are hardliners who want to take advantage of this. Um, so I think that the, the, the deal may survive for a, a few months, um, but my unfortunate expectation, my base case will be that, you know, as these negotiations between the E3 and Iran go on, that it will, it will, it will gradually sort of fall apart. And, and then really the question is, what's the trigger? You know, what's the, what will happen for that to be sort of obvious? Um, and, and we may not see that for some for, you know, for a few additional months, but I think it will be very hard. I wish them well, but I think it will be very difficult. And just the final point is that um, uh, in, in terms of what what happens next, that I don't think Iran will resume enrichment. I think they will be sort of careful not to do anything that will give Europe a reason to go back to tough sanctions. Um, but I think they will 
um, engage in partial violations of their own. So we may see them kicking on inspectors and doing other things um, that will, you know, that will sort of erode the deal. And so in six months time, you know, it may not really exist um, for all intents and purposes, although Iran will probably still abide by um, some of the non-enrichment aspects and for their own sort of strategic reasons for the time being. But I think it's a real mess. And I think that the, the, you know, of all of the, of all of the um, mistakes committed by the administration on the Iran deal, uh, maybe the most egregious is that they did this with really no no plan and no strategy in mind for what to do now. So it's a, you know, it's just like, you know, the, the immediate sort of next step, and but not steps two, three, four or five. And um, they're going to run into real problems and they may find themselves confronted with the choice of whether to use force or not in, in you know, within the next year or two. And Tom, in addition to those, the consequences of the deal itself collapsing, one of the things that has been laid bare by this whole whole um, process has been the lack of influence, really, that European leaders now have seem to have in Washington. I mean, Donald Trump obviously likes Emmanuel Macron, but he certainly doesn't seem to listen to him. So are European leaders going to have to get used to this new reality now? And how do you think they should deal with it? Uh, it's a great point. I mean, it, you know, the French in particular were very pleased that they had a good relationship with Trump and um, they, they were very sort of proud of that fact um, in a way because they thought it showed they were more realistic. Um, but now, you know, he really has very little to show for it. And there's a rethinking in terms of how to approach the president. But I would say that um, it's very hard to know what the alternative is, because if you look at all of the world leaders, only one has really influenced Trump on fundamentally. Only one ally has really fundamentally influenced Trump on policy. And that's Mu Jae-in of South Korea, um, who got him to agree to a diplomatic track um, with Kim, and maybe for Trump's own reasons, as we discussed earlier, um, but he did uh, achieve that. Abe, Prime Minister Abe of Japan, who pursued a very similar strategy to Macron, has had a similar outcome. You know, he's got nothing really for this friendship. And so I think U.S. allies have a real sort of question about how to engage with him and do you need to use more leverage with him to sort of get a, you know, to get a favorable outcome and, and what that would mean in practice. Um, but I think it is a big, you know, it's a huge setback uh, for Macron's approach. Um, but of course, you know, the, the absolute alternative of just outright opposition, um, I think would feel good to a lot of people, but won't necessarily be hugely productive either because it, it, you know that that could lead to a major trade war, and of course the U.S. and Europe have common interests, um, and so if they're completely at odds, um, it will be impossible to to realize those and the situation in the Middle East and elsewhere may get worse. So, um, so there are no real good outcomes here, but I suspect, you know, there is some pretty serious rethinking now in Paris and. Um, you know, in Berlin uh, as well, about how to engage with the administration um, on on these issues. Now, Tom, just conscious of uh, the clock maybe is against us, but there were two issues I was hoping to get a brief uh, view from you before I let you, let you go. I think we can't really wrap the discussion without some reference to the events on the Gaza-Israel border this week. And 
and what I think many people would see as a kind of grotesque juxtaposition between those events and the diplomatic niceties in Jerusalem at the opening of the US embassy there. Um, do you think the Trump administration has now removed itself as an effective player in, in the Middle East peace process as far as it exists? Or, or do Palestinians still have no option but to come to the table on Trump's terms, do you think? Um, I think that the... Uh, I think the, the the administration has really disengaged diplomatically from from the region. You know that they have um, they've talked about sort of getting reengaged, um, but really they've been entirely absent. Um, and the you know, it's not just Gaza that the entire region I think is now uh, you know deteriorating steadily and um, is much more prone to conflict. Uh, you know, there's Gaza, but also southern Syria, where uh, and Syria in general, where Iran and Israel um, are now, uh, you know, at loggerheads, and many people expect a, a conflict between Iran and Israel in in Syria over, um, you know, the Iranian presence there. Um, that you know could spread to Lebanon, um, uh, with situation in Yemen obviously continuing, and then there's the U.S. Iran um, relationship, which is very tense. And everywhere, there's no real constraints on escalation. You know, there's no Pompeo's not there, sort of doing shuttle diplomacy, trying to figure out sort of a, a new equilibrium. Um, in fact, you know, Netanyahu's been to Russia more than he's been talking to Pompeo or to uh, Tillerson um, to try to figure out um, what to do, sort of in Syria. Um, so I think it's a very dangerous situation, and it's really. Um, you, you know, uh, epitomizes the retreat of sort of diplomacy. Um, and of course, I think that, you know, and all of these things are interconnected, you know, and, and there are um, strategic reasons, there are localized reasons why uh, these conflicts erupt. And then there's a strategic context that can make it worse and that can, that can actually um, make escalation more likely. And um, so I would hope, um, I'm not very confident Obviously, but I would hope that um, you know that Pompeo would um, sort of very immediately um, sort of engage in very intensive diplomacy um, in in the region to try to um, to you know to try to resolve, but not resolve to try to manage um, the situation. But I don't see it's likely. And then the final thing, Krista, as you mentioned, is you know the the juxtaposition yesterday. I mean, this I think just underscores that. The Jerusalem the decision, you know, to move the embassy to Jerusalem may have been something Trump promised in the campaign, and it may have been something that many candidates and presidents have promised before. Um, but there's a reason why they were cautious, you know, and um, and I think if this was precisely one of those reasons, and that wasn't something President Trump sort of took on board, and you know, even if he were to move the embassy, there was a way to do it that was, you know, sort of less provocative um, and a way to do it that was more provocative. And of course, he seems to have chosen the one that was more provocative. Um, so I think, you know, we'll, we'll see where this goes now. But I think it's um, absent sort of a serious diplomatic effort. I think, you know, we're really sort of in dangerous, uh, in, in, a, in a dangerous scenario in the region as a whole. Okay, and Tom, the, the the last point I was just going to maybe mention Russia briefly because I'd be interested in getting your take on this. It's very difficult to work out what's going on in the sort of U.S.-Russia relationship because Trump seems to, you know, his his admiration for Vladimir Putin appears to be undimmed. 
he rails against the Mueller investigation regularly, the implication being that there was no Russian interference in the election. And yet we see them sparring at the UN Security Council over Syria, new sanctions have been imposed and so on. So how would you characterise US-Russian relations at the moment and and in terms of maybe the risk of conflict in the future in Syria or elsewhere? Um, I think he. I think there are really two policies, you know, that the administration as a whole is quite sceptical of Russia and is pushing back uh, on occasion stronger than Obama, on occasion less strong than Obama. But, you know, it's a bit of a mixed picture. But Trump himself, I think, is remains committed to trying to find a way to partner with Putin. And he's very frustrated that he feels like he's boxed into this harsh position in Russia and he wants to try to roll that back. But, you know, sometimes the Russians do things that, you know, that are egregious and he feels like he has to push back on other occasions, you know, uh, his cabinet and his team uh, sort of move him in that direction. But I think he still wants to sit down with Putin. Um, and, you know, just one uh, sort of observation and a prediction is the observation is that if the Kim summit goes well in his mind, if he strikes a big deal, I think that will encourage him to try to strike a similar deal with Putin. You know, that he will he will think that that's sort of the way he can do foreign policy and he should sit down and have a big summit and, and come up with some new bargain. And I think that's something that European governments are worried about um, in terms of the aftermath of a Korea deal. Um, and the prediction is that I, I think there's a, I mean, this is just an outlandish guess on my part, but I, I think Trump may visit Moscow uh, for the World Cup final on July 15th. Um, he's going to be in London on July 13th um, for his first working visit uh, to the UK. And he'll be at the NATO summit the week before. And the World Cup final is in Russia, of course, two days later. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if Putin extended him an invitation um, to attend that and to have a dialogue the day after or the day before. Um, so, you know, his cabinet will be very strongly opposed to that idea. Um, they they won't want him to have a big summit with Putin. But, you know, just to circle back to the beginning of our conversation, what we've learned over the last year, I think, is that Trump is increasingly just giving orders and insisting on what he wants to do and not listening to his advisors and, uh, and making them follow his instructions. Um, so I think that the next shoe to drop may very well be, um, you know, a dialogue with Putin. Well, the, the World Cup idea is an intriguing one. Uh, there will be a vacant seat, obviously, where the British Foreign Secretary or Prime Minister would yeah. have been, but they're, they're not going. So there'll, there'll be space room. Tom, I could keep you here all day um, and uh, so many teams to get through. So no doubt we'll, we'll have to have you back on again. But that's been great. Yeah, Thanks a lot for that. Look forward to it. Thank you so much. That's all for this week. For more on the Trump White House and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.